Thanks so much to Sentry.io and to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Does Not Compute. Listen, Sentry knows that your code is broken and they just want to help you fix it. There's lots of ways to catch errors in your code today. You could do testing, but you know things are going to fall through the cracks. You could rely on error reports from your users, but that's a bad experience and you're going to have incomplete information so you're not going to be able to recreate the error. Well, enter Sentry. They'll give you detailed contextual information for every single crash, things like a stack trace, the git commit where that line was checked in, uh, what release of your application caused the crash, who the user was, and you can even do a custom breadcrumb trail so you can track the user's events as they work their way through their application so you know the exact state on which the crash occurred. Sentry even integrates with deployment pipelines, so some errors won't even make it to production. They have first-party support for many client and server platforms, including a couple of DNC favorites, Vue.js, Rails, and even Elixir. So head on over to Sentry.io to give it a try. There's a free developer account, no credit card required, and it's perfect for personal projects and early-stage applications. Sentry.io. Your code is broken. Let's fix it together. So I heard a great theory today about Apple's release of AirPower. So you heard that it was uh, they canceled it on Friday. Yeah, I, Twitter went wild <laughs> uh, about that. Yeah. So I heard a theory that they uh, it's actually like an April Fool's, an elaborate April Fool's joke, and that they're actually going to launch it on, on April 1st, on Monday. By the time this airs, uh, I guess we'll already know, but that would be amazing. And will probably never happen. So I didn't really, I hadn't, I haven't been following the story at all. Um, I didn't know what AirPower was until Twitter went wild about it being canceled, <laughs> and I like, thought it was a joke because AirPower didn't seem like something that Apple would name a product. Dude, like, no, Apple, Apple uses military like pronouns in a ton of their products. Boot camp. Mm. Hold on, I, 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 I gotta find this now. It's a ton, huh? I'm getting military veteran discounts, but like that's, a, that's th- a social media ton right there. When you no, it's just when you think about when you start to think about like where they draw inspiration for their names. There's lots of uh, there's lots of military ones in there. I'll, I'll think about it. You keep talking about air power while I search okay. for this. I don't know anything about it. I saw so I remember a while back I saw a Kickstarter for a charging pad that had some sort of there's like three core coils on the pad and they had it. Uh, they had it set up in a way that it didn't overheat and didn't cause problems. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Fast forward a few months, and then people are freaking out on Twitter about air power and didn't know what it was. So I looked it up, and uh, I was like, oh, that looks like the same thing. It has three coils in it, and it's supposed to not overheat. I guess that's one of the reasons they killed it, right, is because it had all these sorts of like heat problems and different things. Yeah, it's not clear to me like what is actually generating heat. Is it like the coils? Is it the the circuitry like it's drawing too much amperage i don't i don't really know but yeah i'm not sure so like the designs from what it looked like there were there were pieces of the coils uh so the middle one was overlapping with the left and the right coils a little bit so i don't know if he like extra heat would, would be happening there because the two coils are together close together i'm not an engineer so i don't i don't know but i literally didn't know anything about air power i had never heard of it before uh they they canceled it that's really funny because it was just a flash in the pan in 20 20- 17 when they announced it pre-announced it and then uh yeah it's just become kind of a meme at this point <laughs> yeah right it was i it was just confusing to me because like i said i thought it was fake i was like air power that doesn't sound that doesn't sound like an, a, a product now that you made now that you mentioned it boot camp 
uh, it, it does make sense to me, but yeah, I had, I had no idea. I was sitting in, um, uh, I had just had lunch with friend of the show, Nabil, and so he took me back to the credit karma offices. So I was just sitting up there, um, minding my own business, trying to figure out what this air power was. And I can't find it now. No one has collected a list, but, uh, I think they mentioned it on the accidental tech podcast once and it really barked my, my, uh, interest. Anyway, I'll think of some more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was interesting to me. I still haven't. I'm on the fence about buying one. So my watch and my phone are are wirelessly chargeable, but my ear my AirPods aren't. I just really don't want to spend what what what's the I figure the price point is probably 150. I haven't even really looked at AirPod two or the new ones that have just I think came it's out. the same. I think it's the same. Yeah, I mean, I spent the money once. I don't want to do it again. I don't feel like spending the money on it right now. Well, you'll do it. You'll do it in a year when like the battery life on the AirPods eventually you don't know runs that. out. You don't know that. I might not, but I probably will, like you're saying. But I might not. We don't know that. We don't know who who can say such things. Only the Oracle can. You're doing the Matrix references again. You got it. You got it. You, no one ever gets that when I say that. Oh come on! I, it's my favorite movies of all time. Don't don't test me in Matrix quotes. I'm trying to I I'm trying to think of the last person that actually got the reference, and I I'm drawing blanks here. You did it to me on the sh- like a few episodes ago on the show, and I didn't say anything, and you called me out on it. Mm. So yeah. So anyway, onto the show. The Oracle. I always liked how they like tried to retcon her, the the actress who played her, like dying and then replacing her with a different actress and they kind of like explained it away like uh you know the agent smith has been affecting us all or something like that like they try to kind of oh yeah put a nod to it like why yeah, she looks yeah. different i don't know i guess you can you can make up anything for those kind of sci-fi things at least it's not as bad as like on a uh soap opera where like literally overnight the children age like 10 years yeah and they have yep. to figure out how to work that in there's a show Jamie's been watching, and uh, between seasons, they replaced one of the main characters, and it's just a different person. No one acknowledged <laughs> it. <laughs> so yeah, so I came in one day and I looked at it, and I was like, "That's not, that's not her. This is a different person." And it was yeah, it just no 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 nod to it in the writing, I guess. No nothing, just suddenly a different a different person in the role. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got Doctor Who and whatever the heck they do with their characters. I don't know how it works. I'm not really aware. Yeah, no idea. Don't at me. So, uh, what you what have you been up to uh, this week? What kind of work have you been doing? Yeah, it's been a kind of half and half, putting out fires and figuring out uh, why the heck the fires came up in the first place, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then putting the final polish on the new Nuxt application and but polish is really the wrong word it's really like the annoying nitty-gritty crap that just needs to get done the edge cases and uh underpinnings to making things nice but yeah the site went down twice this week uh for different reasons for different causes but the same reason <laughs> so we host uh the next excuse me we host the phoenix applications which do handle all of the real-time WebSocket stuff it's uh we don't really use them for server of any data. There's some GraphQL endpoints on there, and then we just have the WebSocket stuff. And uh, they were hosted on two uh, AWS instances that I just spin up myself. Uh, I have it documented, and I just kind of it just takes a couple steps, and I can get those working pretty quickly, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were T2 instances, and the way the T instances work on AWS is that they're the most inexpensive types you can get, uh, but they have a concept of a CPU credit. So, like, if you 
have a burst in CPU usage, you basically eat into a credit. Uh, hmm. And then, but over time, if your CPU usage goes down, then the credits accumulate at a certain rate. And the bigger the instance type, the more cores you get and the faster the credits recuperate, basically. Right. And so you kind of can play the game of like, okay, this, I really don't need this much capacity 100% of the time. I really only need it, you know, 1% of the time. I can, I can, you know, it doesn't cost you anything. The credits aren't money. They just, they're just a number that sits on the box. So, yeah, uh, something happened with one of the boxes. I have two of them clustered together for redundancy. And what, something happened with one of them where uh, the CPU usage just jumped up and stayed high. It was at like 50% usage for like two days straight. And uh, I didn't have the appropriate alarms set up to even detect that, which was, you know, we have those in place now. That's kind of, that's kind of my bad. Sure. Sure. And uh, yeah. eventually ate into all the CPU credits, which means that basically just throttle your CPU at that point. And uh, that's when <laughs> you start to notice, <laughs> hey, something's something's wrong here. Now, that in itself is not a problem. But what happens is uh, as the processor slows down, it can't process messages as quickly. And what happens is like one client will maybe time out trying to connect. And so it'll reconnect. And then more messages flow through the system. And then another client slows down. It's this like cascading effect where... Now you're basically DDoSing yourself. Right, right, right. All okay. the clients are refreshing, 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 and more and more messages, and eventually it just reaches a breaking point. Yeah, okay, yeah. So that happened to us, or something very similar happened to us, right? I think I remember mentioning that there was a bug with a version of XQ where if you have uh, an XHR request that fails inside of a job, that the memory consumption increases significantly. And so we had a number of jobs queued that were updating our Alaska search index and uh, we were getting rate limited uh, by, uh, I can't remember what their name is, but our, our, our search provider was rate limiting us because it's kind of a black box. They don't explain like what the actual limits are or anything like that. Uh, so yeah, so anyway, we had a number of jobs failing and so the RAM usage would shoot up uh, Heroku would restart the dyno. And luckily this wasn't on a web-facing dyno, it was just a worker dyno. But Heroku would restart the dyno and then it would just enqueue all these jobs again and it would just restart itself. <laughs> it would run a few and then enqueue the jobs and then and then restart and then run a few more. So it like, happened overnight and hilariously enough, all the jobs ended up running. <laughs> it just took a number of hours because the dyno kept on restarting. Do you get any kind of notification when a when it kills a dyno, like, can you set that up to like notify you in Slack or something? Yes. Okay. Do you have that set up? <laughs> uh, yes. So I have Slack notifications set up. <laughs> it's going on a rabbit hole now. So for whatever reason, I hadn't been getting Slack notifications on my phone or my watch. Mm. And I had them, I thought I had them turned on. I never turned them off. And, and uh, Paul noticed the same thing happening to him as well. And so what I ended up doing, this is kind of a neat feature that Slack provides. Actually, let me pull it up really quick so I can make sure I get the path right. But when you're on the mobile version of Slack, in the top right corner, there's a little vertical ellipsis. If you click on that, or tap on that rather, and then you go to settings at the bottom, and then you swipe down and go to uh, notifications, and then you swipe down and click on troubleshoot notifications. <laughs> uh, oh boy. You know... <laughs> It sounds complicated, but uh, I'm able to follow you so far. Okay. Oh, do you have Slack on your phone? Yeah, I'm doing it now. Are you looking at it right now? All right, <laughs> troubleshoot funny. notifications. Mm -hmm. Oh, mine are all green, and I just got a push notification. Right, so mine were not green. Uh, my, device second, my device settings and test notification steps were red, and 
I did not myself go into. So that was basically saying, hey, if, if this is red, you have to change it at the, the phone setting level. So I tapped on that and it took me to the notification settings in iOS. And I'm telling you, I did not turn this off. In, mm-hmm. in banner notifications and alerts and stuff were turned off in iOS for, for Slack specifically. I mean, I do believe you. Uh, I've seen weird things happening with notifications getting turned on and off for various things. I know that friend of the show, Andrew, is listening right now and he does not believe me. So I need him to know I did not turn those settings off. And don't come at me in the Discord telling me that I have it all wrong. I'm going to stay out of this. Continue. Where were we? Oh, yeah. Site went down. CPU went up. And so uh, I've, I've tried over the years to combat this issue by like uh, staggering the time reconnection timeouts. So like at basically just doing random, mm-hmm. like it'll reconnect every two to 10 seconds to try to prevent this uh, stampede effect. Um, that's obviously not effective enough. Sure. Um, and I don't want to over allocate CPU for the, just to handle this case. That's not a good solution. And by the way, this is not like I, I did change the instances from the T instances to C instances, which are don't have the CPU credit system. They're much more expensive, uh, but they have, you know, more power anyways, more RAM, more CPU and whatever. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I got to I got to do some more ex- exploring to try to figure out really what's the root cause of the, the problem. Is this an easy fix or is it like? a fundamental architectural problem with the way we deal with messages through the system that uh, can't do this correctly. You know, is this like, is this the perfect use case for gen stage? Uh, Maybe, right? Like this is, this is probably like a a solved problem, right? This is, I just need to figure out like on one hand, when I'm trying to fix the issue, it's like stuff's on fire. (laughs) We're losing money. Mm. I need to, find a solution and get it fixed. And I was almost at the point where I had to like kick everyone off the console and log them out and send them to the login page just to stop the stampede from happening. But eventually it did stabilize, so that was fine. But like then you're like, okay, let's regroup, let's figure out what kicked this off and you know, try to understand what the heck the problem is so I can figure out the best targeted solution. It's kind of hard to, Yeah, it's not really something you can recreate. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it's something I have to look into is just like, okay, let me see if I can reliably bring down my own test server and then <laughs> try to work through it, you know, see how it behaves and what's going to be the best fix. That's probably the right way to do it. But So that's, a, that's what I ended up doing with, with our, our worker stuff. So I pulled it in locally and I just manually fired up some jobs that I knew would fail or just returned um, HTTP, HTTP poison uh, error responses. And this was, I think I mentioned this was the first time that I had ever used uh, Observer to, to watch stuff. And so that, that's what I did is I, <laughs> I just triggered jobs that fa- would fail and it would spike RAM usage locally and I would just poke around and try different things until it, it stopped happening. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the first step <laughs> for any kind of debugging thing is just, hey, can you recreate the problem? Right, Because right. then, then once you have a, a little playground, you can you can start to play with the stuff, so. Sure. Uh, it's just also trying to figure out priorities now. It's like, is this really going to be a problem? Again, I, I also mentioned that after I changed the CPU types, uh, it's still, we still had another issue uh, a few days later. Very similar sort of issue. And now I was doing some, testing with the dev console and it's possible that like something there got stuck in a reload loop or something and caused it to swamp the server it's probably like my bad Mm -hmm. 
because uh, as soon as I closed all my tabs, it kind of seemed to get better. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't know to be to be determined. But it doesn't feel great when your site goes down and you have no yeah data to even really understand what caused it and how to fix it. It's really uh, I don't know, demoralizing. Like like people want to know what's going on and you just don't have an answer for them. It's just like I I, I don't know. Yeah. There's been a few times where that's similar things have happened where we've had some downtime and, and, and so someone will ask like, Hey, what was the cause? And like, well, I'm still looking, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, and it is, like you said, it is kind of demoralizing because that's why they, the person pays you to, to handle this, this stuff. But yeah. So, so what kind of uh, messaging, what kind of alerting and stuff did you end up plugging in? Yeah. So we use Grafana for, uh, tracking pretty much everything about our service. We use it, we hook it into AWS CloudWatch. So we pull all of the uh, stats from there. So CPU usage is the main one. Um, I also feed a bunch of our own metrics into CloudWatch, which then Grafana will pull down. So like how many active sessions, you know, web sockets there are, uh, how many people are connected, uh, what types of connections they're making, that kind of stuff. So, uh, and then it also hooks into the load balancer so I can see like, you know, web requests per minute. So like uh, our Rails load balancer, let's see, during peak times, it's like 300 requests a minute and Phoenix is like 2,000 requests per minute. Uh, but it's just, it's API polling. It's just stupid Ajax stuff that I need to replace with WebSockets at some point. And that number will effectively <laughs> go to zero. So it's like... Yeah, we have uh, we have that going on too on our homepage. We have a couple of components that just do API polling because... The idea was we'll get to sockets at some point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's worked. It's worked fine for a dozen years. It'll, it'll keep working. It's fine. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So I set up alerts on Grafana. Uh, we set up some alerts in AWS CloudWatch. Uh, we've done some different monitoring tools. We're playing with. Uh, uh what's that? Uptime Robot is really good one. Um. I've used that for years. It's gotten better over time. I use that for some of my personal stuff as well. Uptime Robot. Yeah, it's a good one put that in the show notes i have seen this yeah i've actually been using now that i can't think of it uh staging.designcollective.com will tell me not staging uh status.designcollective.com will tell me hyperping is what i what i've been using oh yeah i've heard of that one too yep yeah yeah but yeah that's what we use at design collective and so when something goes down i get about a hundred emails (laughs) <laughs> I think it sends an email every couple of minutes if something stays down. So um, luckily we haven't experienced any like extended periods of downtime. Uh, but even just having like 10, 15 minutes of downtime, because there's been a couple of like Heroku platform things that have happened uh, over the last few months. And so that's what I feel like most of our downtime is, is actually uh, platform things that, that we don't necessarily control. And so I'll wake up and I'll have like a bunch of emails from, from Hyperping. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, we get those from time to time. And then it's like, yeah. first thing I do is I, I check to see if like any other major sites are down because <laughs> they're mm-hmm. all hosted on the same cloud services. Right, right. Uh, and then I kind of get a feel for, because they're that, you know, looking at people yelling on Twitter is way more reliable than going to the actual AWS status page. Oh, yeah. Same with Heroku status page. <laughs> same with Heroku status page. I don't know. There's, yeah, there's been, so I'll like look at application logs and, message support and I'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just stuff like that. But, uh, luckily, luckily, like I said, nothing major, but that's what I've been using anyways, is hyperping. So, so I've actually never used Grafana. I've always looked at it and wanted to use it because I like graphs and charts and things. 
And uh, I'm actually putting a link to the live demo because this is awesome in the in the show notes. What I guess what else? So you're using Grafana for for some alerting, and you're using it for graphs and, and watching stuff. Uh, do you use any sort of like logging service uh, that that has an alerting built in? Or no, we don't have anything like that. At least for the server side of things, I have Sentry obviously coming in the plugged into the new Nuxt console, so that's going to be nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't really solve this problem. Um, again, as I mentioned, I'm just running my own little. AWS instances that are c- configured myself. Sure. And uh no, I just haven't I just haven't plugged in any any log uh scraping service into that yet. Um I think I mean it definitely needs to happen. Uh I think what I really need to do is probably move it all to Gigalixer. Mm-hmm. Which I do have it running on Gigalixer and staging and it seems to work great. So, I think Gigalixer and they Gigalixer has a concept of um what do they call them? Um, they have a way to pipe logs out of their instances. Like a log drain? A drain, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. And then, uh, so then I can plug that into, the, um, I don't know, any any one of the ones out there. I haven't even looked at it. So that's definitely on the list for sure. Yeah, that's something that I use use a lot. And I don't know, it's, it's so so you mentioned like all this stuff that you've been uh, wanting to do and know that needed to happen. And it's funny because when you say that, I have a flashback to all this stuff in Design Collective that we've been, we've been starting to get to. And again, with Design Collective, we have uh, a whole nother technical person that RHR doesn't, right? Because you're the only developer at this point still, right? Yeah, that's right. So there's two of us. So I feel like uh, I don't have it as hard anymore. Um, but I'm starting to like get to some of the things that I've been kind of feeling the same way. But when you said that, all these things popped into my mind. And actually what's even funnier is that I have a couple of uh, Slack reminders. So every week on Monday, Slackbot reminds me of something and I just snooze it for the next week because I know I can't get to it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, there's, I don't know, that feeling, that feeling like, cause like you said, you feel like, yeah, yeah, I know. Like that sort of response comes to mind. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. Like I know that, I should have this or I should have that, but it's hard with one person. It's just so, it's so, there's so much stuff when you're doing back end, when you're doing the front end, when you're doing the DevOps, when you're doing everything. It's just, there's just so much stuff that needs to happen. Uh, it's really, really difficult to uh, be on top of everything all the time. I don't even know if it's possible. <laughs> Preaching to the choir, man. Right. Yeah. Well, I will, I will add my, uh, my 20 minute quick recap of my week <laughs> with, uh, with a positive note. Uh, I have been working on the front end stuff as well. And I came to the point where I needed to get the console working on iOS. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the console has always worked on Android because Android has Chrome. And guess what? Chrome has the best WebRTC support in the industry. So, and mobile Chrome is real Chrome. So that's great. I've never had to do any extra development for Android in terms, except for like responsive layouts and stuff, obviously. Yeah. Uh, as far as the underlying WebRTC stuff goes, always just worked. With iOS, it's been a pain because Safari didn't support it for years, and we had to write a little native wrapper that deals with it for us. I actually didn't actually write that myself. We hired a, a firm to write that, and I worked with them to interface it with the application because like, getting WebRTC to work natively compiling is a pain in the butt. So it came to the point where I had to get this working on the new site. And I really, 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 really didn't want to have to fight with WebRTC libraries again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, iOS 12.2 just came out. 
And I'm like, hey, I wonder if it actually works oh, no. nice now. And guess what? It just friggin' works. Does it? I mean, it took a little bit of work, took a little bit of finagling. But, uh, you know, I add some conditionals here and there. And actually, it's funny, Safari uses the newest and latest and greatest versions of the API that, like, Chrome doesn't even, or, like, Chrome <laughs> supports the old legacy stuff. So I had to actually update the code to make it better <laughs> just to get it to work in Safari. And it's uh, right. it's great because now it's like when you're in a, in a, when you're connected to a station in Safari on your phone, it's just like you're on a call. Well, it's not even like that. It actually, actually shows up like a, um, like you're streaming music. Mm-hmm. So it'll show up like, you know, you can use your AirPods, you can, uh, or headphones or the internal mic. It, uh, it shows up in your music player so you can like change the volume and up and down and and uh, it stays connected in the background. So when you it's far in the background, there's just a big red uh, microphone icon in the on the corner of your you know what screen. That's, it's funny that you're saying all this stuff because uh, the other night I was working on our new website, uh, which is live now by the way. I'll talk more about that later. But I was working on it and I wanted to test that. I wanted to say, I want I was I was wondering like, hey, will this play in the background in mobile Safari? Because I was clicking around in the mobile version of it. And we're using uh, what's it called? Player, P-L-Y-R. Uh, yeah, P-L-Y-R to I-O. That's what I'm using for audio, the audio player library. And you're talking about the DNC website. You said our website. Yeah, yeah, the D- yeah, yeah, yeah. The DNC.show website, not uh, not Design Collective's website. Yeah, so so I was uh, tr- testing it on my phone and I was like, hey, uh, I'm airplaying this audio to my HomePod. And it plays in the background, and I didn't think anything of it. <laughs> that is cool when you get that level of integration, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, continue. I don't um, need to. No, that that's it. I'm just I'm just very happy that I no longer have to maintain that app. I'm perfectly fine telling people they have to upgrade iOS 12.2, uh, and uh, it also mostly works on desktop Safari as well. So that's uh, still a little some little. Uh, issues here and there but it mostly just works so uh, it's it's uh that's a big weight off my shoulders i don't have to support that i can take it down from the app store uh it hadn't even been updated for iphone 10 screens like it was still letterbox so i was just like mm-hmm. um oh another thing another problem which i think i mentioned this on a previous episode but like we had to make changes to the ui just to get the thing through the app store because uh you can't have anything on the app related to subscriptions, purchasing, payments, money, uh, right, yeah. right, all the account management stuff, invoices, uh, we had to strip out of the mobile UI with no explanation to why. Hmm. So now we don't have to do that. We just, just send them to Safari. You know, you put anything in Safari. So perfect. That's uh, that's great. That's it's just that's going to be a huge win. Guys are going to be very happy about that. Just gotta get it out the door, man. <laughs> that's a good feeling. I bet that's a really good feeling. Someday I'll ship it. Not Friday. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Maybe I'll cancel it on Friday. Twitter can't handle that. <laughs> Productivity ceases. We'd like to take a quick break to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. DigitalOcean is just the simplest cloud platform to run your applications and effortlessly scale them as your business grows. From the powerful administration dashboard to robust compute, storage, and networking solutions, DigitalOcean provides an all-in-one cloud platform to help you save time and money scaling your applications. DigitalOcean services have predictable, affordable pricing, so you don't have to work around complex pricing structures that lead to nasty surprises at the end of the month. You'll always know exactly what your business will pay for DigitalOcean's industry-leading price performance services in their data centers all around the globe. 
DigitalOcean droplets are quick to provision. You'll have a virtual machine running in seconds. And they'll scale to applications of any size. You could provision one droplet or hundreds. They also offer managed database hosting and Spaces, an S3-compatible object storage layer with competitive pricing. So if you're thinking about trying them out, we're here to help. You can get started today with a free $100 credit at do.co slash does not. You'll have a real VPS running in just seconds. Again, that's do.co slash does not for a free $100 credit towards a flexible and scaling hosting solution for your next application. All right, that's enough about me. What's been going on, Sean? What's been going on with me? I, I'm having all sorts of internal struggles and dilemmas over here, Rockwell. Are you just talking about like your life up to this point or is this just this week? Just all of it. Just all of it, man. Just all of it. <laughs> oh, man. I Let's see. Okay, where, where can I start? Uh, well, from a productivity standpoint, uh, I'm kind of doing another deep dive on, on Design Collective's emailing systems. And the last time I was really able to do this uh, was, man, probably two, two years ago, a year and a half ago when, when I was setting up a lot of the emails. So basically when I, when I showed up to Design Collective, they had a list of emails they wanted to implement, just kind of e-commerce-based emails. Um, so for example, uh, like if, if you favorite a bunch of products, we might send you a digest uh, that you can obviously opt out of, but we might send you a digest of like, here are tangential products you might like, you know, things that you just kind of get from e-commerce platforms. And the original emails we had were made, they were designed by a, a freelance designer. Um, and she, uh, she did an okay job, but she's not, she's not a email designer. She doesn't, have a lot of expertise in like what makes a good email and what what about email makes an email convert, you know? Uh, and so she designed these emails and they were okay and we've just been running with them. And and so recently uh, I've been kind of looking through our mailgun logs and just compiling a report of what our open rates are, what our click-through rates are, uh, where I think we need to improve, trying to, I'm trying to like make some assumptions so that way I can start um, a B testing some emails, like assuming like this might convert better. So let's see what happens and collect numbers and go from there. So this week was a lot of writing in a Google doc, a lot of reading different reports, like most of the major email service providers like uh, Mailgun and, and SendGrid and Constant Contacts or whoever else, they kind of put out yearly reports on the state of the industry. So uh, the one I was just looking at from SendGrid has uh, basically average or aggregate and median counts per industry. So the retail industry's aggregate uh, open count for emails is usually around 18% and the click rate uh, in those in those opens, I think is about 2.7 or almost 3%. Oh, wow. Uh, those are some, yeah, those yeah. are some small numbers that <laughs> just seem to get smaller <laughs> as you go along, right? Sure. And obviously it depends on like industry. Obviously, you know, transactional emails like password resets or welcome emails are, you know, much higher. And, and so, yeah. So, I mean, really like originally when we set stuff up, we're like, we just need to have something, something needs to go out the door. Otherwise people forget. And so that's what we had. And so now I'm kind of doing research and, and learning how to make things better, learning how to, um, just improve upon what we have. Like, try. I'm looking for the quickest wins we can get up front. You know, for it's like doing performance enhancements. You want to figure out what the least amount of change is to have the biggest impact first, and then go from there. And so that's kind of what I've been doing with our email system. Right, and email is a long been a huge pain point in web application development. Just for 
the sheer number of emails you have to send out. Uh, you know, how do you not get flagged as spam? Right, keeping yeah. up your your relationship <laughs> yeah. with, uh, and they have better systems in place for that now. They they made it pretty easy to do in terms of like, you know, having your your DNS be authenticated and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then just email layout itself is a whole can of worms. I mean, I've never tried to basically do it myself. Besides, like a text email, you know, like mm-hmm. laying out laying out emails with tables and stuff. It's like because it's the only thing that works cross platform. They're going to strip out your CSS and no JavaScript. And those are all like <laughs> perfectly legitimate, good, fine things. But it gets to a point where it's like just just send them a link to a page where you can do all right. that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm always appreciative uh, when I get a transactional email that's just text-based with a link. You know, I, I appreciate that a lot. And that does not get the clicks, though. <laughs> and it does not get the clicks. Uh, I mean, transactional is one thing, right? So it, it's really it's a really interesting rabbit hole that I kind of jumped into and and not something I... I mean, I'm like interested in it because it's important for my job. I mean... Emails, especially in the e-commerce industry, is a huge driver of traffic and a huge driver of conversions. Um, it's just that there, there's a big fight around, or it's 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 a battle around making sure things are above board, right? So if you work with a marketing team, making sure that marketing teams aren't say like purchasing email lists from from different sources, or you know making sure that that. Um, well, most of the email providers have pretty good terms of service. So like Mailgun and, and SendGrid and other people are like, hey, you just can't use emails like that. You the emails, the emails that you import or use in our services have to be what's called permission-based, meaning the person has to have opted in first. Um, and it can't be an opt-out-based list where you just send an email and hope the person doesn't want it will opt out instead of clicking the spam button, right? Um, so there's a lot of that. And... and so basically what I'm trying to do is like, how do I, you know, how do I increase opens and conversions and clicks, but also at the same time, make the user feel like they're empowered, that they have control over what I'm sending them. Cause that's a big, that's important to me. And, and so one thing that I did was, um, I went to as many furniture sites as I could, uh, and just signed up for their email lists and I created a Gmail filter for myself so I wouldn't regret that decision. <laughs> uh, and I just started looking around and and a lot of them are really, like the, most of the emails are just kind of the same. But there were a few things that stuck out to me that I liked. And so for example, one, um, The Real Real is like a clothing site, uh, but several people have mentioned them to me of saying that they do a good job in kind of like stewarding their emails and their lists. And one thing that I noticed they do is at the bottom of some of their emails, they have a big fat block that says, um, change your preferences here. Uh, and, and obviously they, they say it in a nicer way, but it's normally an email will have kind of some small meta text at the bottom. It's like, oh, don't like this. You can unsubscribe or change your preferences here. But they make it as part of the email. It's part of the copy. It's one of the blocks in with the product cards and stuff. It says, hey, you don't like this? You don't have to get it. Oh, uh, nice. Okay. Which is, yeah, which is nice. And so, so if I'm subscribing from an email, I'd be more, I might be more inclined to uh, choose the specific ones I want versus opt out of all. Because I feel like in that, that situation, if you're frustrated with an email that you got, you're going to look for the unsubscribe, unsubscribe from all. See, I would get more confused because I would immediately scroll to the bottom, look for the tiny <laughs> blue unsubscribed eight point link and not find it and be like, ah, oh, these, these guys are not going to let me unsubscribe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would totally just gloss over the, the big actual thing mixed in with the content. 
they have it in both places. So okay. they still have all the small text at the bottom, but they put it in the middle of the email just saying, hey, you can control this. And I think that goes, so really, really what I'm learning is like the emailing industry um, or emailing for your company, it's all about building a trust and a rapport with the people that you're sending emails to. And the second you violate that, they're just going to, they're just out the door. They're not interested. They'll opt out. Um, they'll market a spam, whatever. And so that was one of the things you mentioned is that's a constant struggle is how do you keep your emails out of the spam inbox? And so one thing we had to do at Design Collective uh, and again, like keep in mind, both Paul and I are doing a lot of work to make sure that we're not doing anything that makes us feel slimy inside. <laughs> uh, but what we ended up having to do, all of our all of our emails used to go through Mailgun, and so when you sign up for Mailgun, you all you just kind of get lumped onto a shared IP address. So if you and I are both using Mailgun and we're both using uh, a shared IP address, i.e., not paying for uh, a static IP address. Um, you could be spamming people and I could be not spamming people. And then I would also get penalized because the emails are ultimately coming from the same IP address. Um, and, and so what we ended up doing is as we grew a little bit, we ended up getting our own private IP address and we moved all of our marketing emails to that IP address. And then we moved all of our transactional emails completely to a different provider altogether um, to have just complete separation. And I know probably a private, um, a second private IP address could have sufficed, but we ended up using Postmark for our transactional emails, and uh, so so in my mind, our man like our marketing and transactional emails are just completely separate from each other, completely isolated from each other. And uh, since we've started doing that, we haven't had a single "Where's my password reset link?" I didn't get whatever confirmation email. You know, like those questions have just kind of those support questions have just kind of stopped. That's that's really interesting to treat them so separately in your application because they are fundamentally different things. And like you said, maybe technically you didn't need to do that, but uh, Postmark, I mean, they, they only do transactional email, right? Like shout out Postmark. Uh, they sent me a free t-shirt once. And so I will always, I'll always vouch for them because that was cool. Postmark is great. It was really easy to set up. Um, I really like that they have a manual approve process. So you can't just start blasting emails. What's really wild is I started looking into uh, more articles about like purchase lists and re- I didn't, you could even rent email lists. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, <laughs> some services allow you to rent emails or contact information from them. Um, and then I started seeing uh, mail hosts where you could rent a server and you rent a server by how many emails per hour it's capable of sending. Oh my God. And that, that was the pricing tier. I did. Yeah. So I obviously knew like spamming was a thing as a big industry, but I didn't know it was that easy to rent a server that's capable of sending 2000 hour, like 2000 emails per minute. Uh, for relatively cheap, um, yeah, email's so, pretty broken it, as a yeah. protocol. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of the stuff I've been reading about is how do I build that trust with the with our users because I don't want I don't want to spam them. I really don't, and also because of like how we have a relationship with stores when they come on, they can obviously market to their user bases. So like if you had a store and I had a store in design collective in no way, shape or form do you do our contacts ever cross paths. You will never know about my contacts. I will never know about your contacts, but because those, those contacts are your store's contacts, whether they purchased in store, whether they, they filled their email out online and gave it to you that way, the stores can, can to market to those people. And so we have to build a trust with those contacts too, because they might not be familiar with design collective, but they're familiar with, 
whatever brand we're working with, right? So there's another design challenge there because the emails obviously need to to say, you know, communicate like, hey, these are coming from Design Collective, but they're they're on behalf of this business, right? So I've been doing a lot of research on like how do we do that effectively because it can't seem fake, right? It can't seem like Design Collective is impersonating whatever business and sending you this email, right? It has to seem like there's there's like a partnership. Uh, is that is that making sense? Yeah, absolutely. I can see why that would be confusing for mm-hmm. someone receiving that email, not really knowing who is this really from. What what are they actually trying to send me or sell to me? You know, uh, yeah. So that's what I've been doing is trying to. It's like I said, we it's we have like the MVP version of it, and now I'm just trying to make it better because it is like it's one of the backbones of our business. It's just part of being an e-commerce platform is is marketing emails. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's it's 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 a big rabbit hole. But the one thing I have been doing is I've been having I've been I've been moving all of our email designs out of um, EEX files, uh, and we're using Swish right now to send emails and. Uh, Mailgun actually in beta has a templating system and Postmark already has this, but instead of instead of compiling an email locally on your server and sending the compiled payload over the wire, you send a post request with JSON and they use whatever templating language to to push that data into a template that you have it stored on the end remote server. And so Oh yeah, I had to do this uh last week actually. We're having some uh, Lee wanted to uh change some of the uh copy. Mm-hmm on our welcome letter. And so I sent him a link and postmark. He logged in. He made the change and he's like, okay, now what? Like, do we have to do anything to make this live? I'm like, nope, yeah. it's already done. <laughs> yeah, so that was the big, that was one of the big motivations because now that we're spending more time on this, we're spending time like making new versions and it doesn't, like the data, the actual underlying data that gets sent to to this, this endpoint for the email, like whether it's a product list, that doesn't change much. Um, so it's actually really awesome. And, and how it happens is, I can, I'm using MJML, so I made a separate repo, and I'm using Gulp, which is uh, a throwback, but I'm using Gulp to compile them. And so inside of my Gulp tasks, I have a watcher set up. So whenever I change any of the MGML source, it spits the compiled HTML into a folder. And so if I'm running npm run dev, I have a step in there that actually takes a corresponding JSON file and uses that. Uh, so when I'm developing locally, I have a file, say like user welcome and .mgml, which is the template. And then next to that, I have a file called userwelcome.json. And when I'm testing locally, it takes a JSON and injects it into the compiled email. So I can mess around with data. I can do a local API request and paste the JSON response into my my test JSON file. And um, I'm using browser sync. So everything's just live reloading. So I was workshopping an email with Lindsay. I sent her a ngrok link. And uh, I would make a change to the code and her browser would reload immediately. And then she could look at it on her phone and she could see what the email would look like on her phone, on her computer, which blew her mind. So before the process was, I changed some EEX, I go into the console and I trigger a send to myself, which goes into my dev box <laughs> locally. And I refresh a browser and then, oh shoot, okay, well, uh, I have to change the template again. So I make the change and then I have to re-trigger it because it won't recompile the email that's already sent, right? It's just kind of a painful process. And so now we have this slick live reloading kind of setup. And then I also made a uh, grunt task that when I'm happy with whatever design, all the emails just kind of live in a certain folder. 
and I run npm run publish and it uploads everything, the compiled HTML, the image assets, it uploads it all to um, uh, uh, S3. And so that's that's where we're storing. We have a we have a book at uh, a book at we have a bucket on S3 that stores all of the image assets for emails. And so uh, I never delete anything from it. But when I'm ready to update an email, I just run publish. All the email code goes up there, and it's it's ready to go. So like swapping out images, uh, and and making copy changes and design changes and making design tweaks is super easy now and super fast. It was funny the way you were described your your Rube Goldberg uh, grunt <laughs> setup. Yeah, it made me think like why why don't we just have a a grid some plugin data source for MJML and it just generates your just spits out your emails. Uh, you know what? <laughs> I could probably that's let me write that down. I, I I did a quick search. Doesn't look like it exists, but uh, it seems like you're doing two having tool two two tools doing the same job well i could have ele- elevate my status to hero status pretty quickly i think with with a tool like that but yeah it's it's much easier and then and then like you said uh to make a change to an email make a trivial change it doesn't require a redeploy of the api right it doesn't require kicking off like ci and all that stuff because it's just in most cases it's just a simple copy change i also have a grunt task or grunt wow it's even that's even a farther throwback. I have also have a gulp task that uses node mailers so I can actually send myself real emails, test emails to my inbox uh, to look at them. Oh, see, I was the one, that was my fault. I said grunt. I don't know the difference. So <laughs> I, I somehow skipped over that whole phase of of uh, project compilation. I went straight, yeah. straight to Webpack. But, but basically, I this this like working, the basically like, I, I don't know what to call it besides like a feedback loop, right? Like, making tweaks and deploying a thing has become much, much, much simpler for emails, which I think, you know, for me, it took me a day to set all this stuff up. And it, it it's already kind of paying off because to to port an email over to the new system, all I do is I send myself the test email locally. I copy the compiled HTML and put it inside of an MGML raw tag. And then technically it's converted, like it will send that way just fine. And then you just search for and replace and add template tags to whatever you need to replace. But that's all it actually takes. So I don't actually have to go through and make MGML versions of all the current emails we have. I just copy what we have, compile, dump it in there, and it's good to go. And then I can replace it as I need to, replace pieces of it as I need to. So, oh, okay. So that gives you a nice path to at least... Yeah, there wasn't like a big lift. Move forward with the new stuff, but you don't exactly. have to convert yeah. everything all in one go. I mean, that's that's a huge win for adopting some new it is, process yeah. like this. And then uh, on on the other side, so we're not really using, we won't really be using Swish anymore because sending an email is just sending a post request to an endpoint now. Uh, so that stuff just moves into modules. And on top of that, uh, all of the, I really only had to add a couple of queries to our uh, our absinthe GraphQL endpoint. But now most of the emails are actually just being populated from GraphQL calls <laughs> on the server side. So it just gets the data the uh, an inline what's it called absinthe.run query I can't remember, but yeah so so the 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 function that actually triggers the email send just has a, a stringified GraphQL query and it hits absinthe gets the JSON back and just sends it to Mailgun or Postman. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so absurd, but like I have no arguments against that. <laughs> it sounds great, actually. <laughs> it does, right? It sounds. It was. I was struggling with it for a while. I was like, "This is weird. Like, Swish is. This is what Swish is for, 
doing this stuff. But really one thing we've been trying to do is, is the API is now just, we're trying to just make it the API because right now the API does serving data plus other things like sending emails and some other stuff. But we're just trying to simplify it down to the thing that gives the data out, right? And by API, you're talking about your GraphQL and Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about the Elixir app, basically. Yeah, yeah, sure. I just want to... There's a lot of APIs here. <laughs> sure, 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 yeah. <laughs> you're talking about that. Yeah, I mean, wh- why not? It's dogfooding, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so... I, the stuff isn't live yet. I've been having a couple of issues with Mailgun stuff because the the feature is still in beta for a few more weeks, I, I guess. So the docs are super thin. <laughs> and I, I feel bad for my, my friend, uh, I think his name is Chris at Mailgun because I've just been blasting him with like bug reports or like, you know, asking questions about the feature because the docs are really thin. Um, and so actually this, this week I learned about HTTP fold, header folding. Uh, are you aware that that was a thing? You sent me some links uh, to HTTP RFCs. Yeah, well, that's what their documentation linked to. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so so essentially, to pass, as far as the docs are concerned right now, to pass custom data because Heroku, not Heroku, uh, Mailgun uses uh, handlebars on their server. So you send them a template, and you send them the JSON, and they just run it through handlebars on their side. Uh, and I think Postmark uses Mustache. Um, so I, I actually have names. terrible names, mustache. Yeah. So I have, uh, I have two. So basically that's accounted for in, in my gulp setup. So if, if it's a mail gun based template, it runs it through mustache or handlebars and <laughs> so you don't even know which one it is now. It's hard. I'm struggling. Um, but yeah, I have it set up in the code. It works. Uh, but anyway, so that's how it works. You send the data to them and then they compile it. So uh, so how you send the the data to Mailgun in their docs? They say you're supposed to use X Mailgun variables header, and uh, you send them a stringified JSON. And and so there's like a disclaimer right under that that says, oh by the way, if your data payload is bigger than 966 characters, you have to use uh, header folding. And so I was like, what is that? Uh, because I was sending a request and I kept on getting back. Um, I think it was something along the it was like a 400 error and it was request entity too large, I want to say, is what the error was. And yeah, so then I had to like scour this RFC to figure out what this is even called or how it, like what it even is. And yeah, so essentially after 966 characters, uh, you just split, uh, you basically just split your string into a new string and you send another X uh, mailgun variables header. Uh, so... It's not even like folding it. You're just like splitting the links. Oh, well, no, because the the way I understood it was you have to insert a new line, but normally a new line indicates the end of a header, right? Yeah. So the way I thought you did it was you had to do a new line, and then if the next line began with some amount of white space, like was basically indented, either with spaces or tabs, mm-hmm. that it would consider that a continuation of the previous line, and then it would basically concatenate that is that not what it does yeah it's weird because it might because i so basically i haven't been able to get this to work and so that's why i was asking them for help because i was like well your documentation the docs say uh it there's in the documentation in three different places there's three different ways to send data like the data to the the endpoint uh and in one of the positions or one of the places they're sending multiple copies of x uh 
male gun variables and stuff. Because I know I I know that you can have a header field appear multiple times with the same name. I know that's a right. thing because, uh, yeah, if you look at for example, uh, what's the HTTP client Hackney on Elixir, the thing that mm-hmm. HTTP poison is based off of. Uh, yeah, whenever you look through the headers, it's not a map. It's not a map with stringy keys because guess what? Right. Like you could have multiple keys that are the same. So it's actually just a list of tuples. So I was like, well, why would you do that? Yeah, I always wondered why that was, and now I know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the docs are a little bit hard for me to figure out because it says like if you're using the API, then send your 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 stringified JSON in the body with with this key. And if you're using SMTP, use these headers. But then in another place, it says just use the headers uh, anytime you want to send the data. And I'm like, well, I'm using the API, and here you say to use this, but it doesn't work because in one case you get uh, you get an email that has all of the template handlebar template tags stripped out, but there's no actual data interpolated. And in the other case, you get your email, and it it's rendering the template tags just as the template tags, like as as text. Uh, so. That's been fun. But anyway, like with that aside, it's beta software. Um, our API becomes more API-like because the emails themselves are just post requests and we're getting the data from GraphQL anyway. Um, and then, you know, making changes and design changes and tag changes to these emails uh, happens within Postmark and Mailgun, which, I mean, why not let them handle that load? Because if they're willing to do it, then I would rather have their servers compile it than my server compile it. And then, you know, it. I think it allows us to take advantage of some other things like batch sending and stuff like that. So, yeah, it, it's kind of a win, a win, win-win situation, I guess. But uh, that's what I've been up to this week is jumping into rabbit holes and, and trying to, like, dream up how I want to work, like, how I want to work with emails. And my Gulp setup isn't perfect yet because it's it's just been slapped. It's like a... It's like a, a tent that I slap together, but it technically works. <laughs> uh, but it's already less painful than than it used to be. The email workflow is. I can see a future where like, you know those companies where you always get their flyers in the mail or bundled with random other things that have nothing to do with the flyer? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Naked Wines comes to mind uh, where it's like, any excuse to put a flyer in your hands for a free voucher for like a hundred dollars of wine, uh, you're, you're going to get it. You're going to get it randomly in the mail. You're going to get it randomly in like a, something you just bought at the store, like bundled in the box. Like mm-hmm. they'll put them everywhere. I'm picturing like design collective, like everything everywhere. <laughs> like it seems like I don't say a logical conclusion, but like if you, if you were go were to go down that road of like the, I don't want to say evil, but shotgun approach of of uh, advertising, like that's uh that's the logical conclusion of that. It's just like free AOL CDs with a right, yeah, yeah, bag of chips. Like, <laughs> so I mean, the more that I read about this stuff, it, the more it seems like. So, for example, I, I read a bunch of reports from SendGrid and from Constant Contacts, and in both cases, they are saying, even though it sounds like, okay, so like, let me just say this, like, okay, so you say you have an email and you send it to two million people, um, do you think that's a better approach than sending sending an email? So those two million people haven't opted in; you're just sending an email to them. Do you think that's a better approach and will have higher engagement than, say, sending 
uh, 20,000 emails to people that have previously subscribed to your service and said, I want to receive emails? In my head, it's a it's an optimization problem, right? I mean, yes, one of them is obviously the correct answer. But from a business perspective, just a pure number crunching, like engineering perspective, like in terms of producing results, I'm sure there's a crossover point there, right? Where it's like, you have to get new people to know about your thing. But at the same time, you you don't want to put that ill will out there. You don't want to, you don't want to give yourself a bad name. You don't want to oversaturate, right? Right. Yeah. And so essentially that's, that's what they, they're all saying is that, yes, it seems like 2 million is a bigger number and that might make your boss happy if you say, I sent 2 million emails, but you know, it's very well, that very well uh, a possibility that, you know, 1.5 million of those people are now mad at Design Collective or next time they see the name, they have a bad taste in their mouth right? It's unsolicited communication. Yeah. And, and so anyway, like it seems like the industry is typically saying like, Hey, there's not a great shortcut here. Uh, if you do take this shortcut, it might work out in the short term. It will not work out in the long term is, is what they're all saying. And, and that's why there's so many companies around trip campaigns and growing things slowly. And, and, you know, like that's why MailChimp is a tools based service. And that's why they do more than just email, like email sending right now. They have like the, all the landing pages, right? So you can build landing pages and segment different emails into different forms and stuff. Like they have a lot of tools around that because you need to use all those tools to build up a trustworthy list. And uh, yeah, so so yeah, it's it's one of those things where you kind of like take that information and you put numbers to it, right? So in my case, uh, Mailgun is analytics, so I can tag emails with a certain tag. And so a part of the report that I wrote was a table that had different tags that we were sending, um, the open rate, the click rate, how many were sent, and also like the kind of email that it was. Was it sent to design collective user? Was it sent to a store contact? Did it send to, could it be to, to uh, either contact or a user, right? Because some emails don't go to the design collective base because they're going to the store's user base, right? Um, we try to, we had tried to have separation there. Like design collective doesn't try to use contacts just because you brought them to our platform. They're not ours, so to speak. Um, so in this table, I kind of like segmented all the stuff and I'm just at this point now I'm doing is like looking for correlations, (laughs) you know, uh, looking for anything that could communicate to me something that I can kind of like stand on data wise. These two both performed really well through this type of email and they also both have this type of button in it. Right. So it's like grasping at straws, but I guess that's kind of where you have to start, right? Yeah, definitely. As long as you're not, you know, like you said, just blasting things out there. It's a waste of money. It's a it's a big it can become a big waste of money to just do that. Uh it's 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 what's what's the I can't remember like the saying around that, but like usually the, the easiest thing to do is most likely not the thing that's worth doing. I think that was Albert Einstein. Was it? No, I have no idea. <laughs> well, anyhow, um, I think I've rambled about emails now for about half an hour. So why don't you put in an email and send it to me? Um, uh, I'm not emailing on the weekends anymore. Oh, that is the correct answer. <laughs> that is the correct answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, if anyone has any thoughts, ideas, concerns, or feelings about what I had to say about emails. Feelings. We don't uh, talk about feelings help me. here. Don't talk about feelings. Yeah. Like that's what I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to have empathy towards the people I'm emailing because 
in, email email inboxes are I don't want to say a weirdly personal thing because maybe it's not weird that they're so personal, but people take things very personally. And uh, when when you're emailing stuff to them, so I'm trying to keep that in mind as I formulate uh, the the stra- the next strategy, version two strategy for design collective emailing. So if anyone has any experience here, let me know. I would appreciate it, and I'll buy you a coffee uh, for your troubles. And uh, apart from that, uh, any other feedback is great. Shout us out on Twitter. We appreciate anybody sharing it, anybody reading the show on iTunes. Um, just any sort of interaction at all, we're we're just happy that uh, people are listening to the show and, and interacting with us. You can reach us at Twitter. Uh, the show Twitter is at DNC Show. Sean is Sean Washbot, and I am Shrockwell. Yeah, and the show notes are always available at dnc.show, which I've been talking about for a couple of weeks, wanting to release a new version of the website, which... The other night I just got fed up with me not being a good designer, so I just launched it. Uh, and it needs a lot of work still. Um, needs We need to do some some just kind of basic things like meta tags and other stuff like that. And uh need to finish up the blog section, so I've hid that for now. But um, it's all open source. Uh, anything that we do to the website, we want people to be able to look at and see how it's done. And we're pl- I'm planning on adding uh, plain text searching, into the mix again and some other things. So if you're interested in how it's built, we're using Gridsome, we're using Vue.js, head on over to the link I'm putting in the show notes to the uh, Design Collective Gridsome. Wow. The uh, Does Not Compute uh, Gridsome repository and and check it out. File issues, uh, PRs, anything like that. I gotta send you, I gotta send you a PR. I actually got my link to my Twitter wrong. Did I? I'm sorry. Sorry, I forgive you. I'll I'll forgive you once you accept my PR. Uh, we also are discussing discussing the show over in Spectrum Chat, which has a uh, brand new, pretty new UI, just out of the blue with no warning. So that's cool. It's fun. It makes me feel like I'm on an adventure. Text adventure. Text it. Ha. Huh. <laughs> I used to play some mods back in the day. Oh yeah. Yeah. Enough about that though. Uh, thanks to Spec for having us as always. Uh, for for helping put together this awesome community of people and for introducing me to people like Rockwell and Mikhail and some other people that I've I've met in real life it's pretty pretty cool so uh, thanks to them for having us um, if you're other if you're into other design and developer related podcasts you should definitely check out spec.fm because they have a whole slew of design and developer related shows This week's episode of Does Not Compute was edited by Mikhail Delport and produced by Sarah Jackson. Thanks again to Sentry.io and to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week's episode. Don't wait for your users to report errors. Iterate on your application faster, improve your customer's happiness, and make a better product with Sentry's comprehensive error reporting platform. Check them out for free at Sentry.io. And don't forget, DigitalOcean is offering a free $100 credit towards DigitalOcean's effortless administration tools. The robust compute storage networking services, one-click app installs, and even monitoring and alerting services. So you can sleep well knowing your application's AOK. You can get that $100 credit at do.co slash does not.